Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Europe. Today is January 18th, 2015, and once again, Sven Longshanks is here with me, and we are going to discuss Druids, Chaldees, and early Christianity in Britain. To begin the program, I'm going to quote from the Annals of Ireland, translated from the original Irish of the Four Masters by Owen Connellan in 1846. And what I'm quoting is a footnote found on page 75 of the Annals. The, the Annals are full of very scholarly footnotes, but with many citations from the ancient Irish authors from which they came from which the information in them came. And this is designed to illustrate the antiquity and the origins of the Druids in Ireland. Now, this does not really, um, this isn't really a discussion of the Druids of Britain in this particular book, but rest assured, their antiquity and their origin is certainly much the same. About nine centuries before the Christian era, according to our ancient analysts, Tigernmas, monarch of Ireland, of the race of Heremon, was the first to introduce Druidism and the worship of idols into Ireland. And it is stated that while worshipping the idol, Crom Cruach, the chief deity of the Irish Druids, and excuse me if I destroy some of these Celtic words, along with the vast assemblage of his subjects at Mag Sleat, in, in Bresney, on the feast of Sam Hewen, one of their deities, the day dedicated to whose rites was the same as the last day of October, he himself, with three-fourths of his people, were struck dead by lightning as a punishment from heaven for his introduction of idolatry into the kingdom. Magslakta signifies either the plane of adoration or the plane of slaughter and obtained its name from the druidical rites performed there, or from the human sacrifices which the pagan Irish offered up to the deities of Druid, Druidism, as the Canaanites offered up theirs to Moloch. In this place stood the famous temple of the Druids, with the great idol, Krom Kruach, surrounded by twelve minor idols composed of pillar stones and decorated with heads of gold. This temple and its idols were destroyed by St. Patrick and, and, and the analysts accepted the Catholic version of the life of St. Patrick who erected a church on its site. Of these events, accounts are given in the life of St. Patrick by Jocelyn the, Jocelyn the monk in Cambrensis Eversus in O'Flaherty's Ogigia and in Valencia's 
Collectania. These are history books or, or chronicles compiled of Irish history. Magsliacht, which is a place, right, was situated in the present barony of Mohill, county of Leitrim, and afterwards received the name of Fjoldnacht, which may signify a wild or woody district. Fenag, in after ages, had, had a celebrated monastery and college and was long famous as a seat of learning and religion. Cromlechs, or cromlechs, of huge stones and other druidical remains are to be seen at Fenag to this day, and this day means about the 1840s when this book was translated. Bresni was inhabited in the early ages by the Firbolgs, who are called Belge or Belgians by various writers. The Celtic tribe of the Belge was one of the earliest known to the Romans as well. Afterwards, by the Malaysians of the race of Ir, or the Kalana Rory, and lastly, by the Malaysians of the race of Heraman, the Firbolgs who possessed Bresni are mentioned by the ancient writers under the names of Ernade, Ernanians, Ernakes, which names are stated to have been given them from their inhabiting territories about Loch Ern or Lake Ern, E-R-N-E. Ptolemy, the great Greek geographer of the second century, denominates them Ernidi, Ernidoi, or Erdinoi, as given in his map of Ireland by Ware, O'Connor, and others. These Ernians possessed the entire of Brethne, or Bresni, and made a remarkable figure in the history of the early ages from the various great battles fought between them and the Malaysian kings. And, and most, um, most e- even casual students of European paganism understand that the Firbolgs were considered the first inhabitants of Ireland. And, and here we see in the oldest Irish literature they are connected to the Belge, Firbolgs or Fir Belge. And, and, um, they were Celts of the continent who lived in the area which we know today as Belgium. And the second of the races in Ireland were the Malaysians, who we see today are, are, are mentioned here in this context, but in the annals of Ireland, people who had a cognizance of their descent from the Malaysians what were um, still around in Ireland, in the annals, the histories of ancient Ireland, even after the fall of Rome and, and well into the medieval period. And, and they understood that they descended from the Malaysians. The Malaysians must be from Miletus. They must be Phoenicians from Miletus. That's where the Malaysians came from. And they were called the people of Miletus <coughs> before the um, Ionian takeover of Miletus in the 7th and, I'm sorry, in the 8th and 9th centuries 
B.C., before Christ. <coughs> when the great cities of Miletus became, um, of Malaysia, I should say, became property of the Ionian Greeks, the Malaysians were known to colonize far and wide, not only beyond the Straits of Hercules, but also the Danube River Valley, areas about the Black Sea, and these people were later perceived to be Celts, when in fact, all the ancient records say that they were Phoenicians. Now I'm going to read a short paragraph from the Annals of Ireland from another footnote on the Druids found on pages 271 and 272, and, and it might be a little... Um, Difficult, there are a lot of Celtic words here that I have an opportunity to mispronounce, but I think that the information must be conveyed, because not only do we have a clear historical link from the earliest inhabitants of Ireland to the Malaysians and ultimately the Phoenicians, and and real students of the Bible, especially identity Christians, should understand that the Phoenicians were indeed the northern tribes of the Israelites. But we have a religious connection as well. And, and this next citation aims to demonstrate that. Cromlax, the name Cromlax, signifies the stone of Crom. And they were so-called from being used in the worship of Crom, one of the deities of the Irish Druids. Said to represent fate, or according to Lanigan, Lanigan is an older Irish scholar that this, the Annals of Ireland cite rather consistently, but he's one of several. According to Lanigan and others, the god of fire, or the sun, or sometimes called Crom Dub, or Black Crom, and Crom Cruach, signifying Crom of the heaps of stones, or cairns, as quoted by Lanigan from the tripartite Life of St. Patrick, a book that Lanigan evidently wrote, and the idol of Crom Cruach, as stated in Lanigan and O'Flaherty's Ogigia, a writer named O'Flaherty wrote a history named Ogigia, quoting from the Four Masters, and also in the Book of Invasions, by the O'Claries, was destroyed by St. Patrick at the Temple of the Druids on Magsliac in Brethny, now Fenag in Lytrim, and the last Sunday of summer is still held, Domnach Crom Dub, or the Sunday of Black Crom, being sacred to St. Patrick as the anniversary commemorating the destruction of the idol. This is the real origin of the name Cromlach, and not from the stones being in a sloping position as absurdly stated by some writers. And, and that's mostly because that word Crom can be seen in Irish to mean something bent or crooked, which is why those writers make the conjecture. And, and um can actually describe a curve or an arc and, and seems to be connected to the idea of a serpent. And derived from the opinions of common people, the, the, the mistaken definition of the word crom, 
The chief deities of the Druids were the sun, moon, stars, and winds. So they worshipped the hosts of heaven, right? And woods, wells, fountains, and rivers were also objects of adoration. The sun was worshipped under the designation of Bel, Bial, or Baal, as by the Phoenicians and other eastern nations, and also under the name of Grian. So, so we see the religious connection, and, and there are several religious connections here, which can be made directly with scripture, not only in the worship of the stars of heaven, but in the worship of the, of, of the natures, the elements of nature in the groves, which the children of Israel in scripture were consistently reproved for. The time dedicated to the worship of the moon was called Samhuin, which was one of their deities. And the wind was worshipped under the name Gaoth, the sacred fire of Baal. And sacred fire is also a Hebrew, a, 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 um, a, a portion of the Hebrew book of um, Numbers discusses sacred fire and, and the um, problems caused by bringing profane fire out front out into the encampment of the children of Israel. The sacred fire of Bial was lighted on the evening of the first day of summer, or May Eve, at the temple of the Druids on the hill of Usniag, situated a few miles from Moengar in Westmeath. Hence that day is still named in the Irish La Bial Tien, that is the day of Baal's fire. The sacred fire of Samhuin was lighted on the eve of the first day of winter at Tiakta in Meath, another chief seat of Druidism, situated at the place now called the Hill of Ward between Trim and Atboy, and in the Irish La Samna or Samhuin's Day. It is the name applied to the 1st of November. We see those days, May 1st, October 31st, November 1st, are, are still significant in, in our, um, in our supposedly Christian calendars, which are actually, um, pagan calendars with a face job, but with a facelift. No fires were permitted to be lighted in Ireland except those obtained from the Druids at May and November, who delivered their sacred fire to the people with great incantations, and for obtaining it, a payment of one screeple, a silver coin equivalent to three pence of modern money, or, or probably about $700 today, I'm kidding, was levied on every house or head of a family. Some remnants of the custom originating from the celebration of the sacred fire of the Druids is still preserved in May, in the May fires lighted in Ireland. The oak was a sacred tree to the Druids, and the rites of Druidism were chiefly celebrated in the oak groves. And the name Druid 
in Irish, Treoi, or Druy, is supposed to be derived from the Irish Deir, or Duir, which signifies the oak. Or, according to others, it was derived from the Greek word Drus, which also signifies an oak tree. As the ancient Gauls are said to have taken the derivation of Druid from the Greek language, which their learned men spoke in Caesar's time. According to the, and, and this is the title of a French book, but it means the dictionary, the historical dictionary of religious cults. The word Druid was derived from Deru, which in the Gaulish language signified an oak. And it may be observed that Drus is the Greek for an oak, a word which resembles the Celtic. By Caesar, Pliny, and other Roman writers, the Gaulish word for Druids was rendered to Druidae and Druides. And by modern Latin writers, the word Druids has often been translated into Magi. Three of the Tawath Daydanan, kings of Ireland, and the Daydanan, the Danans came after the Malaysians at a later point. Three of the Tawath Daydanan, kings of Ireland, were named from their peculiar deities. One was called Mac Coyle, or the son of the wood, as he worshipped the woods. Another, Mac Keacht, or the son of the plow, his god, being the chief emblem of husbandry. And the third, Mac Green, as Grian, or the sun, was the great object of his adoration. Accounts of Irish Druidism will be found, and he lists a, a list of historians, and interesting descriptions of the Druids of Gaul and Britain are given in Caesar's commentaries, which is absolutely true in the Gallic Wars in Book 6. So we see that there are historical connections of these people of Ireland to the Malaysians of the Mediterranean Basin and ultimately of the Phoenicians. And we see that there are, that there are a plethora of religious connections, not only in, in the bell worship and, and the name for bell or bell is still evident in the Irish language, but also in many of the practices as well. All of them practices which the the ancient children of Israel were reproved for time and again in scripture. The worship of trees and the groves and and the the, the, um, fornication that went along with that worship and the child sacrifice or the human sacrifice and, and, and many other elements of paganism that the children of Israel had fallen into, the sun worship of Baal and, and all of that. So with this, I will introduce Sven Longshanks, who I'm sure has plenty to say on the topic. Hello, Sven. Hi, Bill. Uh, yeah, uh, praise Yahweh. Um, yeah, I, 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 that's interesting to hear that. I mean, I, I think part of that has been uh, sort of coloured a bit by the view that our ancestors were idol worshippers, even though they haven't actually found any idols. I noticed there they were talking about um, uh, smashing up idols in Ireland, 
And I don't think they've actually found any idols. I think what they may have meant there is that they smashed up um, one of the stone circles. Right. It seems to me, I'm sorry, it seems to me that that they're talking about in in the terms of idols, and that's true, and, and I had to quote the material without commenting on it too much, but... You're right. They only smashed stone circles, which outsiders who were not initiated, and especially Catholic outsiders, may well have taken for idols. Yeah, so I, I, th- I think that's um, possibly what happened. I know that um, in St. Patrick's time, they they burnt a lot of the uh, the books of the, of the Druids as well, which, which was which was a great shame. Um, but I'll go into some of that now. I've got, I've got like a, a a brief background, but it's more to do with the uh, the Druids that were in Britain rather than sort of what happened in in Ireland. And I'll start a bit further back than that, because the further back that you go, the more you find how pure our religious sensibilities were. I mean, far from starting out with a plurality of gods, the earliest beliefs we can identify in Egypt and in India all indicate a belief in one god with many names and attributes. Over time, this became corrupted with the various powers and attributes becoming worshipped in their own right, along with angels, demons, and, and great men who were also deified, such as Odin and Thor. And the, the evidence for the belief in one god is not just limited to the very old empires of the East, however, but it can be seen in what we know of the earlier spiritual belief systems in Europe, that are the Druids. Uh, the Druids believed in one God who was present in everything. It could not be contained within walls or idols. But this God had three main aspects to it. That are the past, the present and the future. Corresponding with being the creator, the sustainer and the destroyer. And this is the same as the original Aryan Vedic belief. Which then became corrupted into what we know as Hinduism today. With its many gods and goddesses. It's likely that this triple aspect to God in the Druids' understanding had an influence on the later orthodox formulation of the Christian trinity of Father, Son and Holy Ghost, along with other Druidic traditions such as the sanctified space becoming a sanctuary for all those who were being pursued. And the, the Druids named these three aspects of God as Bel, Tyrannus and Yishu. And Procopius of Caesarea wrote in 530 AD, Jesus, Taran, Bel, one only God. All Druids acknowledge one Lord God alone. Showing that although they appear to have more than one God, that was really just an uneducated view of it. And Yeshu was the present, the sustainer and the son. And his was also the name of the Druids expected Messiah and healer the curer of all ills, known as the branch and symbolised by the mistletoe. And when the British people unanimously voted to become Christian in 179 AD, they never had to actually change the name of their god, for they had been worshipping the same one all along, under this name, Yishu. And we can see that this change had to have been by a unanimous vote of the nation, as this was the requirement for changing the religion of the country, according to the Malmatine laws. And Molmus was an early king from around the 4th century BC who set down the first laws of Britain and these lasted right up until King Alfred later translated them into Latin in the 9th century. And along the way they got um, translated by Arthur into the triads and then from the triads they got, they got turned into King Alfred's laws at that time. 
And these, these laws included many that can be seen to have derived from Mosaic law, such as blood for blood, a portion of land as a, as a birthright, uh, genealogy having to be proved to the tenth generation in order for someone to be true born. And at the same time that the British nation actually proclaimed itself Christian, three archflamens became the first three archbishops and 28 flamens became the first bishops. And the archflamens were the, were the archdruids. So there was obviously no contradiction between the beliefs of the druids and those of Christianity. In fact, Talies in the Bard wrote in the 6th century that Christ the Word from the beginning was from the beginning our teacher and we never lost his teaching. Christianity was a new thing in Asia, but there never was a time when the Druids of Britain held not to its doctrines. Now, this cannot have been a later political device intended to justify Christianity, as when you look into what we know about the Druids, we can see that they were indeed following a proto-Christian faith in line with that of the old patriarchs and Levites. And the main evidence for this that we can still see today are the stone circles and cairns that are all over Britain along with the artificial mounds of the congregation, which are referenced in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, which were the original places of assembly where matters of importance were discussed. And Christ's Sermon on the Mount may have taken place at one of these mounds in Judea. Um, but before I go into these mounds, um, Bill, did you want to say anything on those, those first... Um, a bit there that I just read out? Well, well you did. You quoted a source I never heard of or knew existed, Talaisin the Bard, and, and his assertion that Christianity was right with the, the British people from the beginning. But that is substantiated by um, writing which has survived through the popular academic channels in, in the writing of Gildas, who, who died, I think, in... 570 A.D. Wait. And, and Gildas asserts that um, Christianity was in the British Isles right at the beginning from the reign of Tiberius who, who ruled for about I think five more years after the crucifixion. And, and Gildas puts Christianity in Britain right at that time. Uh, Taliesin was, uh, he was a bard in um, King Arthur's court, who was in the 6th century. Uh, he was the one that's credited with uh, writing these triads and, and um, writing down some of, uh, some of the Druid's wisdom. Uh, that was where it got written down into these Welsh triads, because once the Druids became Christians, the, the ban on writing down their wisdom w was lifted. But I'll, I'll get to that... Um, a little bit later, but yeah, that's, that's where that quote comes from. He was uh, a bard at uh, King Arthur's court, and that's the King Arthur from the, from the 6th century, not the one from earlier, because there are two King Arthurs, and then they get mixed up, which is why people think, oh, it, it must be legendary exploits, because he couldn't have done all these things. Well, it was basically two, two King Arthurs from the same kingly line, but I'm, I'm sure we can go into that in another podcast well i'll um i'll get into the these mounds and these circles then and uh, why they show that they, it was a proto-christian uh, religion that they had and the, the most famous of these places of assembly in britain these mounds silbury hill is right next to the biggest stone circle avebury the artificial hill itself is a technological feat that has been likened to the pyramids and the name of the stone circle avebury is derived from avery 
which is the same word as Habiri or Habiri or Habiru, Habiru, which is, you've probably seen it spelled H-A-B-I-R-U, which is the same name that's used in the Armana letters to refer to the Hebrews and derived from the great patriarch Eber. And the, the, the first recorded mention of a stone circle anywhere is not in Britain, but it's in the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 4, verses 19 to 21. And the 12 stones that Joshua pitches are described as being at a place called Gilgal, which is the Hebrew word for a circle. Uh, interesting, our word circle today is still similar to that original Hebrew word Gilgal. Uh, most of the stone circles in Britain can be read like calendars by looking to see where the sun rises. And they were used to tell the time of year for sowing and harvesting, as, as well as for sacrificial offerings. And Caesar claimed that the Druids offered human sacrifices at these circles, but to date, the only remains found have been of cows, sheep, deer and goats, exactly as was asked for by Yahweh in the Old Testament. And cairns were also used for sacrifices, and they were built strictly to the Davidic directive of not using any metal tools to shape them. And some of the flint hammers that they used to shape the stones at Stonehenge were found underneath one of the uprights at the turn of the last century when it fell over. And no idols or images have ever been found in Britain either, which is all in accordance with Old Testament law. And the only, um, the only things that have ever been found have been left there by the Romans. There was never anything uh, from before that. I mean, they've got the odd temple of Mithras and the odd uh, um, idol from from then, but they weren't British. They were people that had, that had invaded Britain from, from the Romans. And the sacrifices made at these stone altars had to be without blemish. And just like in the Levitical rites, the Druid would lay his own personal sins and those of the community onto the head of the victim before sending the blood to the earth and the flesh to the fire. And Stonehenge itself was built using the same unit of measurement as the Great Pyramid in Egypt and can be seen from its stellar alignment to have been created around about 1680 BC. Uh, Enoch is credited in various traditions as being the first to record the movements of the planets and by looking at the descriptions of the, the lengths of the hours of the day in the book of Enoch, it can be seen that whoever wrote that apocryphal book had to have been in the north of Europe at the time to be recording it, and probably at one of the stone circles in Britain. And according to the Welsh triads, for every hour of the day at each of the three gate circles in Britain, there are 100 choristers continually singing the praises of God. And Hacteus of Miletius, writing in 600 BC, claimed that there are also harpers there, which provides a link with David and his famous harp playing, and that the harp is still the sovereign seal of Ireland to this day, and it was used as a teaching tool by the Druids there to explain the sciences. Uh, did you say anything about um, Hecateus there, Bill? No, no, I didn't. I was... Um Hecateus of Miletus, I, I, I wish that his entire work survived. We only had fragments. But, but, um, the, the harp is definitely as old as Ireland. And, and long before the Christian period has the harp been a symbol of Ireland. What, which is, um, it, it's, we see these people that inhabited Ireland as savages and, and, it's simply not true. Even Bede records that the Irish <coughs> had their own alphabet and writing um, long before it was the, the Roman alphabet was introduced. That they had a very high level of civilization. 
compared it's to quite fascinating what, I was say, it's quite, quite fascinating what they actually did with, with the harp they used it um, they could make a pair of compasses out of it they could show you how um, the, the different notes for the music they could use it as a thing for um, measuring the distance of the horizon and I think there are basically there are seven different disciplines that they could use the, the harp to explain as, like, as a teaching aid so it wasn't just a musical instrument; it was it was a symbol for and, and a teaching aid, and that's why it was so important to them. And that, that's why it became their sovereign seal. Um, yeah, that's something we should probably go into at another time. But yeah, none of, none of these people were savages, which is you know w- the way that they would like to portray it today, because they would, they would like to portray it as. Um, the Roman Church sort of civilizing everyone and they don't want people to they want us to think that we were just savages and we were the same as the savages in Africa which is just just not true I think that's why they try and say there was human sacrifices but there was there's never been any human sacrifices found at all in Britain as I was saying earlier well, well the, that's the, the problem uh, I'm sorry that's the problem with literature about Ireland and and even things like I just read with, with the analysis of the four masters and 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 they had a recorded history of Ireland which was quite in depth and and it went from the earliest times that their oral and written traditions allowed but they were contemporary only from about maybe the 13th through the 16th century or 13th 12th through the 17th century AD and and so that's rather late in history, right? Even though they can say things about the ancient Malaysians two thousand years before their time, that they they're still rather late compared to the ancient Malaysians. So so all of those histories and, and we'll see that's a big problem with Bede. But when you scratch the, the Catholic propaganda out of the way, you can get the truth out of Bede. And we will see that probably in the second segment of the series in two weeks. I don't think we're going to get to it today. But it's all through this same Catholic lens. And, and the Catholic Church does want to, and always has wanted to, play that role as if it appeared that all civilization and all Christianity depended on it. When in fact, that, that's just a, a, a misrepresentation so that it can assert its own authority on others. And, and it's the Catholic Church has not done us any favors in, in recording history because it's always um, revolving around Rome. When in fact many things were taking place which were totally independent of Rome or the Roman Empire. Hecatahius of Miletus, 600 BC, he was the first known um, Greek geographer and, and historiographer and, and, and writer of, of these accounts and, and descriptions of the world in prose rather than in poetry. He's quoted by Herodotus and, and by many other ancient writers, but his own work did not survive. We only have fragments found in quotations from others. It's probably there that I, uh, that I got it from. I've got four or five books here to do with uh, the Druids in the early church. 
and uh, it's the, the quotes like that I am get, I'm getting from there. I haven't actually read those original classics or the, the histories. I have to rely on uh, you for that, Bill. I know you've done so much work in that area, and I know everybody appreciates it. I know I certainly do. Okay, um, right, I'll get back on with uh, with this that I've written here. Uh, the, the druids are recorded as having known the circumference of the earth and the movement of the stars, and the nobility throughout northern Europe were educated by them. Each court would also have its druids and bards, and along with the aristocratic peoples, there would also be local children listening to the instruction. It was only the religious truths that they kept committed to memory. Everything else was written down, probably in Phoenician Hebrew before later in Greek and Latin, and the Ogham inscriptions were reserved for on the stones, when they did carve anything into stone. The Druids themselves studied at the universities in Britain, which were known throughout Europe as containing the purest doctrines, with gentility from throughout Gaul travelling there to receive the best instruction. There were 40 of these original chief seats of the Druids where there could be anything up to 60,000 students studying at any one time. 31 of these places of higher learning can still be identified as they kept their original name despite later Roman attempts to change them. It took 20 years to fully learn all that was required to become a Druid and you had to have been part of their caste in the first place just like the Levites of Israel and the Brahmins of Aryan India. There were three separate orders in all, the Bards, Ovates and the Druids. The Bards were concerned with the arts, the Ovates were the prophets and the Druids were the priests and the lawgivers. None of them could be taxed and the people were expected to pay for their upkeep. Again, this is exactly the same with the Levites and the Brahmins. During war it was unlawful to attack them and they were allowed to travel unmolested between the two sides attending to the wounded. They even knew how to break and reset bone to ensure that it grew back correctly. We can see from this that our ancestors in Europe were highly honourable people who could be trusted to keep their word. And when the Romans came and made no distinction between the caste of people and attacked the Druids, the people were horrified at their barbarity in doing so. The Druids wore white robes with a jeweled breastplate, exactly the same as that worn or recorded as being worn by the Levite priests. And five of these breastplates have been found where we have been lucky enough to find bodies buried in their regalia. They are also recorded as having a Qumrit or Celtic cross on the back of their robes and when they were not wearing their official clothing they wore trousers. Aberis, a druid who travelled to Athens, was said to have got there on an arrow of Apollo which was probably referring to his magnetic compass. He is recorded as speaking perfect Greek and being a worshipper of the supreme being. Uh, Magi was the Latin word for a druid. This was used by the Celtic writers of Ireland to describe them. And it has been suggested that the three wise men of the Bible may even have been druids themselves. Pliny wrote of the druids of Brittany as being Gaulish Magi, and Diogenes Laertes compared them to the Chaldeans of Assyria, the Magi of Persia, and the Parsis of India in points of learning and philosophy. Uh, there's even uh, a reference to Pontius Pilate who was said to have been educated by the Druids and the question that he asked Christ, what is truth, was one of the questions regularly debated by them in their colleges. And did, did you want to say anything about that, Bill? Well, well no, I've, I, I've read that from, um, 
from, from sources such as Isabel Hill Elder. I, I really have no comment on it, however. I really don't. I wouldn't dispute okay. it. Uh, I wouldn't dispute it. Even many Romans, and, and I think Pontius Pilate was a Roman and not a Gaul, but many Romans were highly educated men in, in many facets of, of, of learning. I think there's, there's something that says that he was Spanish, and that, but he was, he was, um, I think he studied with the Druids, that's what they say. I suppose it probably comes from the question, what is truth? Because that was one of the things that the Druids used to, used to debate. I mean, their motto was truth against the world, which I'll get to, uh, later, but they were all devoted to truth and, and pursuits of philosophy and, and finding out what was the, what was the truth of things. And, Caesar wrote that the Britons' fierce fighting spirit came from their belief in a life after death. And Luca, an educated Roman writing 50 years after Christ, said about them that from you we learn that the born of a man's host is not the pale realm of the monarch below. In another world, the spirit survives still. Death, if your law be true, is just the passage to enduring life. So the, the Druids had this belief that uh, there was life after death, which was different to um, the the belief that people just went down into into a shoal and just lay there uh, asleep, awaiting for something to happen. They they believed that life life continued on in another life uh, after death, which is what made the British people so such so fearsome fighters because they weren't prepared to die for their country. In fact, one of the um, one of the triads, which I'll get to in a little bit later, is it talks about talks about dying for your country. And the, the Welsh triads that I mentioned earlier were first written down by the bards of King Arthur's court in the 6th century. And once the Druids became Christian, the restriction on writing their wisdom down was lifted. And it is from these triads that we can get a good idea of what their philosophy and spiritual beliefs were, as well as what their laws were. And I've got some of the uh, some quotes from these triads here. Um, I'll read out uh, three duties of every man worship God be just to all men and die for your country so that, that shows you that they're, they're patriotic and willing to die for their people absolutely and let me say real quick while you're on the topic of the Druids and, and Rome that Druidism was outlawed by Claudius at the same time that Christianity was. He, he saw them both as equal threats to, to the um, stability of the empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. I, I've got a little bit about that um, later later on. They definitely saw it as a threat. Um, and here's another bit from these triads. In every person there is a soul, in every soul there is intelligence, in every intelligence there is thought, in every thought there is either good or evil, in every evil there is death, in every good there is life, in every life there is God. And here's another one. Let God be praised in the beginning and the end. Who supplicates him, he will neither despise nor refuse. God above us, God before us, God possessing all things. May the Father of Heaven grant us a portion of his mercy. So there was, there was, you know, they were praising God and there, were, there was also uh, philosophizing as well, which you can, you can see in, um, in these triads. Here's another one. There are three primeval unities and more than one of each cannot exist. One God, one truth and one point of liberty where all opposites preponderate. 
Three things proceed from the three primeval unities, all of life, all that is good, and all power. And I just read another one here. God consists necessarily of three things, the greatest of life, the greatest of knowledge, and the greatest of power. And of what is the greatest, there can be no more than one of anything. Now this last one I think explains well how what can at first glance seem to be a plurality of gods is actually just different manifestations of the same God. And when Caesar saw the similarities between the attributes of God that the Druids honoured and the different gods that Rome worshipped, he was mistaking their beliefs for the same corrupted beliefs that the Romans had. And the Druids' beliefs were obviously incompatible with Rome, for Rome outlawed them the same as they did Christianity. If they had indeed been the same as Apollo and Jupiter, then there would have been no need for them to do that. And I've got, I've even got a, a Druidic prayer here, which says, Grant, O God, thy protection, and in protection strength, and in strength understanding, and in understanding knowledge, and in knowledge the knowledge of justice, and in the knowledge of justice the love of it, and in that love, the love of all existences, and in that love of all existences, the love of God, God and all goodness. So you can, you can see f- from these um, triads, you can get, a, you get an idea of what they, what they were like. And as I mentioned earlier, the motto of the Druids was truth against the world, which is exactly what Christ preached in more ways than one, since he identified himself as truth personified and taught rejection of the world. So I I think, you know, you can see a lot of similarities here between their their beliefs. This is stuff that was written in the 6th century by the bards who who had become Christian and were writing down some of the the Druidic wisdom now that they no longer had, um, they were no longer banned from doing so. And do you want to add anything to that, Bill? Well, well, the triads, even the poetical form can be found in the Hebrew scriptures in Proverbs chapter 30 that there are three things that are never satisfied. Yeah, four things say not, it is enough. That there's um, several triads. For three things, the earth is disquieted, and, and for four, which it cannot bear, and, and it goes on and lists those things which it's talking about. And, and th- this is a um, just another indication that the, these people had similarities of culture. A lot of similarities, I think. But far from being like the pagan nature worshippers of the East, our earliest northern ancestors were monotheistic and highly advanced. And people today are taught that the straight roads in Britain were built by the Romans, but they were not. They were built by the early Britons, who fought against Caesar on them in their chariots. And these chariots had the same form as the ones used by the Assyrian Empire only they've been improved upon by having blades added, as can be seen from the ones that have been recovered. And far from being backwards, the, the ancient Britons had telescopes in the forms of wells and they could read the stars. Unlike the other religions that the Romans sought to absorb among their own, Druidry, like Christianity, was outlawed by them and slandered in their writings, leading to many of the misconceptions that we see about them today. I mean, people think that by claiming to follow the later Norse gods that they are honouring their ancestors. For their earliest European ancestors were the people in Gaul and in Britain who remembered that there was only one god. And the people who built the stone circles were not praying to Odin, their ancestor, but to Yisu, the holy branch sprung from the tree of Jesse that was to come. 
and it is likely that the great secret that the Druids held was that they were the original people of the Covenant and their feats of memory had to have been phenomenal to remember all that they did and it had to have been passed down to them unchanged from the earliest times and due to their strict genealogical code they were following a type of eugenics that would have ensured that only those who were biologically equipped to be able to use their knowledge would find out about it and Stonehenge is an incredible piece of engineering as are the roads, the mounds, the mine workings the stone settlements they're all built by this ancient builder race and the last of that builder race's philosophy was that of the Druids and it evolved pretty much seamlessly into Christianity in Britain there were no marches made of the apostles of Christ when they came here in the first century they were welcomed and given the same privileges as the Druids were they had land allotted to them and they were given maintenance from the people and they succeeded in converting King Arviragus in the first half of the first century AD but it was not until a century later that the whole country became Christian with the positions that were formerly held by the Druids going to the new bishops who were themselves of the bloodline of the Druids and the original Church of Christ made up of his covenant people would continue the Druidic traditions of universities, hospitals and monasteries sending out missionaries into Europe and converting the Goths and later helping to convert the Angles and the Saxons despite having been pushed out of southern England by them the deification of the Saxon ancestors that the Scandinavians took to did not happen until centuries after the Druids had converted and even that still shows traces of their original heritage as being among the twelve tribes of Jacob Israel and it was common knowledge that the purest European religious doctrine was held by the Druids in Britain and they were the first people to accept Christianity and teach it to others and the Vikings did not appear in history until six centuries later and when they did, they had, they had a corrupted form of the knowledge that the Druids originally held. It was this same Chaldee or Celtic faith of those converted Druids that the British King Constantine was instructed in before he became Emperor of Rome and legalised Christianity. And this form of the Christian faith was pretty much universal for the first six or seven centuries. And it was not until the sixth century that we hear of there being any differences between the church at Rome and the official church elsewhere. The Britons originally refused to acknowledge Augustine's authority or Rome's superiority at that time. And Augustine actually only managed to convert the Saxon kingdom of Kent to the faith, with the rest of the Angles and Saxons being converted by the Celtic church it was not just the people who kept the scriptures of the Old Testament that were waiting for a Messiah and following the laws given to them by God the Druidic priests of Britain and Gaul had memorized their scriptures just as the old Israelites had and their transfer to the new faith was as much a continuation of the old one as it was for the Judahites and other Israelite tribes in Judea the Druid similarities to the Levitical priests point to a shared origin for both and this was common knowledge a few centuries ago with antiquarians like William Stukeley writing extensively about the Hebrew connections with Druidry in 1740 and 1743 and since then archaeology has confirmed these connections but the Judeo-Christian church pays no attention to them preferring instead for the European people to think that the Jews are the remnant of Israel and that our ancestors were pagans worshipping a plurality of gods like the Hindus do now so I, you know, I think there's been a confusion there when they when they look at um, uh, 
when they when the or the establishment looks at the records that they have of different names that they that they had for gods that the Jews had for gods, they think that they were actually worshipping different gods. But I don't think that was so. I mean, even in the the, um, the Chronicles of England, in the in the Brute, it, it says the, the the many names of God in one of the really early um, records. In that, there's somebody taking a vow, and this is before referring to before Christian times and the Druids, and it said by the many different names of God. So they only had one God, but they they called him by by different names. And Caesar, I think, got this mistake. And when he when he thought that he could see Apollo and Jupiter in the in the deities that the the Druids were worshipping, so I think there are too many similarities to the to the Levitical priesthood for them to have been worshipping all these different gods. I mean, they haven't found any traces of any swine being sacrificed. It just goes back to the the Scythians. They they never had. Never found any traces of any swine with them, either. You've got but, you've got the what, dress, every, everything about them. I mean, what, what do you think of that that sort of theory, Bill? I think it was the Romans that taught the world to eat pig. That's what I I, I really believe that that that's um it 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 may have been in Greece earlier than Rome, but there were um, divisions among the Greeks, as Strabo attests, as to whether the um, swine should be eaten and and many Greeks considered it unclean and certain temples wouldn't even allow swine into their cities or or to be sacrificed so so wouldn't accept swine for sacrifice so so there's um, it's noted in, in Strabo that there was contention over the usability of swine as food before the first century BC, so, so the Rome in in Rome, if you look at the um, the artwork on the walls that that's been um, dug out of Vesuvius and and other places where Roman original Roman art has been preserved, they ate anything, just like the French and Italians today basically eat anything. It, it's um, no restriction in diet at all. So, so, um, shellfish and swine and, and whatever they could get their hands on. Well, which is evident too in the East, to the Persians, to Babylonians. The delicacies, as Daniel calls them, where he begged the king that he be given a diet of vegetables only so that he could avoid contention over unclean meats. And, and that's why he did that. The, the, um, The parallels with, with Druids and, and Levites are, are fairly striking even in the descriptions offered by Strabo and Julius Caesar of Druids. And they're, they're sort of lengthy, and we may get to them today. I would first like to read from Gildas' works concerning the early presence of Christianity in Britain. And, and Gildas wrote from circa 504, he was born around 504 AD and lived until about 570. So he wrote in the middle of the 6th century AD. Now at this time, there really isn't a Christian Pope. 
not until Justinian had established that in the fourth decade of the sixth century. So Gildas is probably writing right about that time. He's coming of age right about that time and, and writing his historical works. And, and the way that the, um, Bishop of Rome was made Pope over all the other Christian churches, that really, the, the power that the Pope had later really wasn't, um, concentrated in Rome and of any true efficacy throughout the Christian world until the time of Gregory the Great a century later. So it wasn't like Justinian issued his novels in, in, um, the end of the first part of the, the first half of the sixth century AD. It wasn't like they had immediate effect on the world. And, and Gildas is more or less free, it seems, uh, of, um, popery and Catholic innovation, where the later British writers, Bede and Nennius, um, are heavily influenced by popery and, and Catholic innovation, especially Bede. Bede is just a complete sycophant for the papacy and the Roman church, what, which is, I mean, it gets sickening in, in a lot of his writing what, when you're aware of the fraud that the Roman church had, had perpetrated. But even the truth can be discovered in Bede once you wipe the Catholic, the, the pro-Romish propaganda out of the way. You could see the truth in Bede very clearly that there was a... Um, a British Christian church in the British Isles, which was there long before any agent of Rome. But whether whether you want to believe that St. Patrick was a Catholic, which he's, the, the original St. Patrick certainly was not a Catholic, or if you want to, want to um, understand what happened in the days of St. Augustine and his um, embassies to, to Britain, there was a British Christian church centuries before that time, and Bede proves it, even though Bede isn't trying to describe it. His writing proves that that church existed and, and was much older than any Roman Catholic presence in Britain. From Gildas's works, from the middle of the 6th century AD, this is written, and, and this is... um. This is probably 150 years at least before Bede and Nennius. The Romans, therefore, having slain many of the rebels and reserved others for slaves, that the land might not be entirely reduced to desolation, left the island, destitute as it was of wine and oil, and returned to Italy, leaving behind them taskmasters to scourge the shoulders of the natives to reduce their necks to the oak and their soil to the vassalage of a Roman province he's talking about the Roman takeover of Britain to chastise the crafty race not with warlike weapons but with rods and if necessary to gird upon their sides the naked sword so that it was no longer thought to be Britain but a Roman island 
and all their money, whether of copper, gold, or silver, was stamped with Caesar's image. Meanwhile, these islands, stiff with cold and frost, and in a distant region of the world, remote from the visible sun, received beams of light, that is, the holy precepts of Christ, the true sun, showing to the whole world his splendor, not only from the temporal firmament, but from the height of heaven, which surpasses everything temporal. At the latter part, as we know, of the reign of Tiberius, by whom his religion was propagated without impediment, and death threatened to those who interfered with its professors. These rays of light were received with lukewarm minds by the inhabitants, but they nevertheless took root among some of them in a greater or lesser degree, until nine years' persecution of the tyrant Diocletian, when the churches throughout the whole world were overthrown. All the copies of the Holy Scriptures could which could be found burned in the streets, and the chosen pastors of God's flock butchered together with their innocent sheep in order that not a vestige, if possible, might remain in some provinces of Christ's religion. What disgraceful flights then took place, what a slaughter and death inflicted by way of punishment in diverse shapes, what dreadful apostasies from religion, and on the contrary, what glorious crowns of of martyrdom then were won, what raving fury was displayed by the persecutors, and patience on the part of the suffering saints, ecclesiastical history informs us, for the whole church were crowding in a body to leave behind them the dark things of this world, and to make the best of their way to the happy mansions of heaven, as if to their proper home. So Gildas is basically attesting that Christianity reached Britain in the first century, and even though it didn't catch on very quickly at the very start, it certainly did catch on and was persecuted heavily even in Britain in the reign of Diocletian, which who was one of the the um, more zealous persecuting persecuting well more zealous emperors persecuting Christianity, let me put it that way. So we can see from Gildas an assertion that Christianity was in Britain as early as the first century. And we can go to um, Bede. You like to call him the execrable Bede. Bede was yeah. a um, an 8th century church historian. And he, he wrote a lengthy... Um, it's not really the political history that we would like it to be, but he wrote a lengthy history of Christianity in Britain in the centuries leading up to his time and in his very time, which is the 8th century A.D. And he said a lot of things which were very telling, which when you look through the Catholic propaganda, prove these other stories to be correct, that Christianity was in Britain at an early time. And and Bede, and, and from Bede we also see how early 
the 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 popes of Rome and and there wasn't really a pope of a Roman Catholic Church as we know it today there wasn't any such thing as that until after the time of Justinian even though as early as the time of Eusebius which is right around the time of Constantine the Great Eusebius had um, actually mentioned that there were certain bishops of Rome who insisted to be called Pope outside of their own area and and who were trying to exert authority over neighboring Christian bishops but Eusebius also described that that was not accepted by those neighboring Christian bishops they wouldn't have that they were all all bishops all Christian bishops in the time in in the early days of Christianity and and up to the time of Justinian all Christian bishops were peers and none of them had any authority over one another only from the time of Constantine to the time of Justinian was the emperor um, usurping and and usurping authority over these bishops of course before Constantine Christianity was outlawed totally and and to be a Christian bishop would probably have cost you your life so all bishops were peers until the time of Justinian there was no pope and in fact we can tell from the early church writers the word papa or pope was actually used as a term of endearment in many places within the empire where Christians would address their own local bishops by that term as a term of affection or endearment. So so the word Pope was more or less used in that manner and it was usurped by the Roman bishops and, and applied only to themselves with the inference that the bearer of the title is the head of the church on, on, on earth. And, and all of that is actually anti-Christian. But with Bede, we can see how early the propaganda was that all of these early Roman bishops were popes. And we're going to see that here. Where Bede writes of Lucius, king of Britain, Writing to Pope Eleutherus, which actually means freedom, desires to be made a Christian. In the year of our Lord's incarnation, 156, Marcus Antonius Verus, the 14th from Augustus, was made emperor, together with his brother Aurelius Commodus. In their time, whilst Eleutherus, a holy man, presided over the Roman church. Now at this time, the, the, the Christian church was actually being persecuted and, and Christianity was outlawed. So this is all complete revisionist history by Bede, the apologist and, and sycophant of the Pope. And he goes on to say, Lucius, king of the Bretons, sent a letter to him entreating that by his command he might be made a Christian. He soon obtained his pious request, and the Bretons preserved the faith which they had received 
uncorrupted and entire in peace and tranquility until the time of the Emperor Diocletian. Now, of course, Diocletian did, as we see in Gildas, heavily persecute Christianity in Britain. And, and even Gildas said it was, it was practically wiped out. However, if we look past the Catholic Christianity of, of Bede, the, the Catholic propaganda of Bede, we actually see Bede's admitting that Christianity was in Britain in the second century AD. But I believe that this letter is a story the Catholics made up because they don't, that they really did want to suppress the fact that Christianity was in Britain at a time long before Rome ever accepted Christianity and Christianity was in Britain independently of any Roman authority. So so wanting to that they couldn't deny to all these British people that knew that Christianity was in Britain from the first century, they couldn't deny things like the words of Gildas. So what they did was they created a cover story for it. Just like most of the legends of St. Patrick, where it's connected, to, where he's connected to the Roman Catholic Church, that's also a cover story for Roman Catholicism and, and, and is all innovation laid upon true history by the Catholics so that they, as you said, Sven, so that they can pretend that they are the source of the light. There's no doubt in my mind. Nennius, who's also a Catholic apologist, but not quite to the extent of Bede, he also said after the in the same century, in the 8th century, that after the birth of Christ, 167 years, King Lucius, with all the chiefs of the British people, received baptism in consequence of a legation sent by the Roman emperors and Pope Evaristus. Now this too is part of the same propaganda story that Bede has in regards to this because there were no Christian Roman emperors in the second century. They were all pagans. Most of them were hostile to Christianity and there were no popes. So we see when we look past the Catholic propaganda, we see that Christianity was in Britain in the second century. And it certainly was, as Gildas, the third witness, also attests. And Gildas is not, he, he doesn't mention the Catholic Church in connection with Christianity in Britain in the second century and he is not a sycophant and, and, and trying to make cover stories for the Catholics so the real story is found in Gildas or a reflection of it where Bede and Nennius they're both trying to run cover for the Catholic Church so, so yeah, that, I, mean, I, believe, I believe they're also trying to um, uh, tidy up the reputation of the Saxons as well because the Saxons had, had, um, had only just become Christian and they, they didn't want to be seen as having been persecuting 
Christians because the, the British were Christian and the, the pretty much the whole country was Christian and the, the Saxons came in and they trashed all the monasteries, trashed the universities, burned everything up and, and then um, eventually uh, the Rome came over with, with their missionary and, and converted one little county which was Kent and then the, the rest of the country became converted by the British Christians that were already here the Celtic church and I think it was um, Augustine was the name of the guy that came over here and he went to the Celtic church there's records of this in the, in the chronicles of England and uh, said well you, you've got to be obedient to us you've got to be obedient to the you know, to the, to the head bishop in Rome, and they said, "Well, no, the only bishop we've ever known to be obedient to is the bishop of Carleone, our own bishop, which is the bishop of Cardiff, and because they already had three archbishoprics in Britain, which which were the, the same as the, the three um, seats of the of the archdruids, because it went right back to these archdruids becoming the first archbishops in Britain, and, and that was in the, I think that was in the sixth or the." 7th century when Augustine came over uh, I don't think it was uh, later than that but your, your quote there from Gildas when he was writing that would have been just before the um, the Anglo-Saxon invasions and Engist and Orza and they eventually ended up driving the, uh, in the original British Celts descended from Brutus they ended up driving them all into Wales you know they, they sort of cleansed the whole of of England from them and changed the name of the country from Britain to Ang- Angle Angleland, Engist's land is what they were going to call it. And it eventually became England, and um, I mean these these Saxons eventually, uh, you know, they got their punishment when the Vikings came over and did did the same to them. But you know, it really, um, I mean, it turns this whole idea that the Christians. Um, converted the pagans with a sword and persecuted the pagans. It turns that whole idea on its head, British history does, because you've got, you've got this original Christian nation, possibly the first nation, well it was the first nation to proclaim themselves Christian in, in, uh, either in one, well, about in, around about 170 AD. And then you've, you've got the Romans, um, massacring loads of them and attacking the country. Then you've got the Saxons coming in. Pagan Saxons coming in, massacring them, destroying all the libraries, the monasteries, the um, universities, and then you've got the Vikings coming in, pagan Vikings coming in, destroying them, burning everything, trashing everything, and each one of these groups eventually became Christian and then and got back to civilization again. But it, you know, it really does show up this lie that Christians brought Christianity to the pa- these peace-loving pagans, you know, with a sword. That's just not true. And it is, it, it's obvious that there was this, it was well known that um, King Lucius was the one that uh, changed the religion of the whole country. But because it's mentioned there by um, Ninius and B, and because they've got to find up this um, cover story for it and say that it, it came from sending a letter to Rome, because, I mean, this was a big thing. And it's written into the laws, into these Marmotine laws, that that's one of the things that you need a unanimous vote from the entire nation to do, is to change over from one religion to another. And it's recorded that when, when that happened, the, the three archflamens, which, you know, the archdruids of the country, they became the archbishops, and the archbishoprics were the original seat, uh, chief seats, the high seats of these of these three druids so it goes right back to then and you've got so much folklore that, that's around it you've got um, 
you've got records of it, the, the king's lists that go back to there. So you, you've got the chronicles of, of England, which talk about it and which mention, you know, the, these, this early Celtic church. And then you've got this, you know, this official history, which comes in with Bede, that just wants to cover all that up and pretend that that, pretend that that didn't happen. And I think part of, part of this, um, demonising of the Druids is, is to do with that as well uh, it, it's something that they don't really want people to look into because as you say it, it delegitimises this claim of um, uh, the Roman Catholics to being the original church and the Pope being the leader of everything because he wasn't, they, they were all seen as equals and I think when you, when you go back to the, the uh, first Bishop of Rome I think you find that that was um, a British man as well. I, I, I can't remember the, the name of him now, but it's actually in the in the um, Vatican records that the, the first bishop of Rome was was one of these original British converts that were all to do with the royal families in Britain at the time. And again, this also this makes a rubbish of this whole um, Christianity was the Bolshevism of the you know of, of the. Two, two, two thousand years ago, it was just the, the equivalent of Bolshevism. It wasn't. It was, it was the aristocracy and it was the philosophers and it was the people at the top of society that brought this in. You know, which goes exactly back to that verse about um, nursing from kings and, nur- and from nursing from nursing at the king's knee and nursing at, at queen's knees. That's where you'll you'll um, learn your learn your scriptures scriptures from or teaching from I can't think of the exact verse there but you can probably uh, remember it if since I can't build you know the one I'm thinking about no, no but I'm sorry I had something else on my mind and, and that's the conversion of fellow um, fellow Germans or, or kindred peoples to, to the Christianity by the sword and the the only um the only time I could recall in history, now I'm not really a, a thorough student of the Middle Ages, I mean I haven't studied them all completely, but the only time I could recall in history where any um, Saxon or Germanic tribes at all what were converted to Christianity by the sword was when Charlemagne defeated the Saxons on the continent, but the Saxons on the continent had been looting, pillaging, and persecuting the Christian tribes of, of the Franks and other Germanic tribes to the West for several centuries and, and had been a constant threat to um, to the peace of Europe and, and a constant goad in the sides of civilized Europe. So the Saxons on the continent were what were converted by the by the sword by Charlemagne but two centuries later or, or pro- perhaps not even that long what was the reign of Otto I the Holy Roman Emperor and Otto I was a Saxon king and, and that was probably the, the, the pinnacle of German civilization in, in, in that age without a doubt that wasn't till the seventh or the eighth century, was it? Either with uh, Charlemagne um, killing this uh, group of Saxons, but uh, then at the same time you've got um, Alfred the Great, a century later, who looked to Charlemagne as his hero. You know, he right. thought the guy was was fantastic, and and he wanted to see, um, he wanted to do the same thing in Britain that, that Charlemagne did in Gaul. 
in, in France, Germany, that area, the em- sort of empire th- building that he did, he wanted to do the same thing in Britain and wanted to see a revival of, of learning and the arts and high culture. He wanted to imitate that. If you look at the, um, the life of Alfred the Great, he, he talks about it and, and how much he admires Charlemagne. So the people today look at it and say, oh, the did to these pagan Saxons. Well, you know, these other Saxons didn't think it was dreadful. You know, they thought it was a, a pretty good thing that he did. And plus this, this massacring of people as if that was um, uh, out of the ordinary. That, that's not out of the ordinary at all. I mean, the, um, the Saxons that came to Britain did exactly the same thing to the, to the princes of the, uh, of the Britons. They, they were supposed to have this love day where they were going to meet under a, under a white flag and they were going to talk things out and they were going to, the British people were going to give the Angles and the Saxons, you know, these counties and say, there you go, you can, and we'll meet, you know, they went to meet and it was all supposed to be without any weapons and the, the Saxons all carried, um, hidden daggers and they, and they slew all the princes and all the, and all the wise men. That had met there under a white flag, so you know it, was, it wasn't an out of the ordinary thing to do that Charlemagne did. I mean, doing things like that was that was respected. To be honest, you know, it was that power and force was respected at that time, and it was you know it was Christianity that sort of changed that and helped help our, our nations and our tribes to to have something in common between them all. You know, this is what happened when. King Arthur went into Scotland and he was about to slaughter the Scots and they said, well you can't do this to us, you know, we've, we've, got, the, we've got the same faith as you, we'd be Christian men, you know, we worship the same Christian God, you can't kill us, you know, so, so he didn't, you know, and I think that shows you what happened in various other, other places as, as Christianity um, sort of t- took root in Europe, it, it became seen as a unifying force and it enabled these tribes that previously had been fighting amongst one another to actually unite together and become the nations that, that we have today. Because up until that point, they were just, you know, there were a lot, of, a lot of tribes fighting against one another, and the only time they would unite was if, you know, was if this force would come in and attack them. Like the Romans would come in and into Britain and attack, attack, uh, attack the British people. Because you have various different tribes in, in Britain at the time, but they would unite under one king, it would be the, the Pendragon, is what he would be called, and he would be the military sovereign of the whole country, and they would they would fight against whatever force it was that was coming in. And this is where you get this dragon symbolism from as well. I mean, it's not the satanic symbolism. Again, it's to do with this force and the power. And you know, the dragon was it was a powerful, forceful, mythical creature. So it was a symbol of the king. It wasn't, you know, a symbol of of evil. And the old kings used to be called the the, the pen dragons. That was that was the word for it. So these these things sort of change over time. Again, it's like it's like looking back at these druids now and saying, "Oh, well, they must have had all lots of different gods because they had these different names." But it wasn't; it was just one god. And it's also like looking back and saying, "Well, they must have been devil worshippers because they had dragons on their shields and dragons on their flags." But they didn't. The dragon was was there to strike fear into your enemy. You know, it wasn't saying we worship, you know, something that's evil. It was, you know, be evil to your enemies. You know, you want to win. You got God on your side. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're the one on the side of good, and you're fighting against evil, and you want to beat, you know, the, your enemies. So you want to scare them, and you have this evil-looking symbol there to frighten them. You know, it's, it's different ways of of looking at things. 
of course but of course they want us to look back in, in history now and and uh, see us see ourselves as savages and see the Roman churches coming in and, and saving us and being this authority over, over us whereas you know that wasn't that wasn't the way that it was I mean you look back at our earliest um, British laws they're all about freedom of conscience and freedom of liberty and freedom to to think and and uh, to act and to, and to um, make your own mind up about things none of it was um, Force, about forcing people to become Christian. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, well, I've, diver- I've diverged a bit there, Bill. Well, well most of the um, vestiges of culture in Ireland were wiped out first by the Danes and and, and then by the English. So, so it's the Irish people have... Um, the, the Welsh suffered at the hands of the Anglo-Saxons, but I think the Irish people had, had um, suffered much more at the hands of the English later in history. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they've really had a bad time of it. <clears throat> There's still a lot to present here, and, and I think we should probably leave it for the next segment. We're already nearing um, 90 minutes. What we have, um, the Druids from the classics, and, and the way that Caesar, Strabo, Diodorus Siculus describe the Druids, and, and we will see many um, parallels with, with with the Hebrew scriptures and, and the way the Levitical priesthood was described. And, and we also, I, I have more quotes from Bede that, that I would like to present because they demonstrate from the context that there was a British church and and he called it the British church as opposed to the Roman there was a British church in Britain long before Augustine and, and the Romans ever came to convert the British that they just wanted to convert the British Christians into the power and authority of the Roman popes. That's what they really wanted to do. That's the real reason for the mission of Saint, so-called Saint Augustine. That's what was really going on there. So uh, we would probably continue with that topic in in our next installment, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sounds sounds uh, good, my me, um, Bill. I'm enjoying it. You know, this is great stuff. I'm learning a lot from you, and uh, I'm really getting into researching this and and getting notes together and uh, and presenting it. I mean, I, I hope people are enjoying our series so far. And yeah, definitely, I think we should make this into two right. parts and uh, and then keep going on from there. It's fascinating learning this history. I think. Well, well the, the proof the, the, the proof is in the pudding. Our people, when they were pagans willfully for the most part willfully accepted Christianity and and, and ju- just like the pagans of today the ancient pagans who who were the most steadfast and persecutors of Christians what were the ones that had few morals and even less scruples and and, and readily slaughtered their own white brethren and, and we see that in the Saxons of Germany and in the Romans, we see exactly that in their persecution of Christians. Yeah, Thank you for joining us, Ben. Became good and 
Well, they say once they became Christian, they they uh, became some of our, uh, our greatest people, innovators. You know, they they may have uh, been like that at, at one time and persecuted their brethren, but at the same time, they had that knowledge and innovation and wit. And once once they became Christians, you know, they became the leading force behind our civilization. So, you well, know, it was, a, it was a positive, definitely a, a positive change to the Vikings, the, the Celts, um, the uh, the Normans. And the Anglo-Saxons, it was, it was a positive, real positive change for all of them becoming Christian. And I'm sorry to interrupt you there. No, 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 I'm glad you did because that's a great way to end a program. It's absolutely true that there's no, there's no white civilization without Christ, period. Nothing else endures. Thank you, Sven. Praise Yahweh. We'll talk to you soon. Praise Yahweh. See you in two weeks. Call recording has been completed. Mm-hmm.